This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, listeners. Thanks for joining us this week. We have a very exciting show, and we have a brand new guest with us today. Her name is Dr. Laura Walker. She is the Chief Medical Resident at St. Michael's Hospital at the University of Toronto. Like myself, she is also a resident in general internal medicine. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me here, Kieran. So we have two very exciting articles to talk about today. One about dementia care and the changing patterns of mechanical ventilation in the ICU. And the second one is about care for patients with myocardial infarction as it relates to the quality of the hospital in which you're cared for. So let's get right into it. Uh, Laura, I'm going to start. So my article was published in JAMA Internal Medicine this past two weeks, and the first author is Joan Tino. It is entitled Association of Increasing Use of Mechanical Ventilation Among Nursing Home Residents with Advanced Dementia and Intensive Care Unit Beds. So what was the bottom line for this article, Kieran? Among hospitalized nursing home residents with advanced dementia, the rates of mechanical ventilation are increasing without an improvement in survival, and this was associated with an increase in the number of ICU beds within a hospital. Laura, I chose this article because it's an area of personal interest as well as clinical relevance and research passion of mine, so to speak. Uh, I care for at least two to three patients uh, nightly from a nursing home with advanced dementia on call in the general internal medicine service. And I sometimes find it very distressing to care for these patients because while I don't believe the quality of life that many of them have are consistent with what I would consider quality of life, I often end up treating them in a variety of different ways, uh, which is influenced by a multitude of different factors. In the broader context of healthcare, The rates of dementia are on an alarming rise. In fact, one of the fastest rising conditions in North America. Currently about 5 million Americans have dementia and that's expected to rise to more than 13 million by 2050. As I mentioned, the quality of life of these individuals are poor and they're at high risk from recurrent infections. About 20% of them present to hospital in the last 120 days of life. Now the intensive care unit plays a very important role in the care for our patients. But the role of the intensive care unit and mechanical ventilation specifically in advanced dementia raises a bunch of different concerns, both in and around advanced care planning and goals of care, but also in potentially prolonging suffering as some of this care is medically futile and expensive. So tell us how they designed this study, Kieran. Well, this was a retrospective cohort study. It used Medicare administrative data and included patients with advanced dementia who were from a nursing home but were hospitalized between the years of 2000 and 2013. They utilized a data set called the Minimum Data Set, which is a very rich clinical repository of information about patients who reside in nursing homes. It's updated quarterly and it has a lot of information about their clinical characteristics, their demographic variables, and also their functional status and their DNR status up until the year 2010 at least in the United States. The primary outcome of this study was to look at the use of mechanical ventilation in these patients. And some of their interesting secondary outcomes looked at the individual hospital ICU bed numbers and the likelihood that a patient would receive mechanical ventilation as it related to the number of ICU beds in a hospital. Then they did some interesting subgroup analyses to look at the correlated risk for patients who had a DNR order, uh, who were admitted with pneumonia or sepsis, therefore the purpose to exclude traumatic and surgical cases, as well as uh, they looked at uh, the cognitive status and the risk of uh, mechanical ventilation in these patients. 
So what was the bottom line for this article, Kieran? Among hospitalized nursing home residents with advanced dementia, the rates of mechanical ventilation are increasing without an improvement in survival, and this was associated with an increase in the number of ICU beds within a hospital. What were the main findings of the study? So let's break it down numbers down a little bit. They had 380,000 individuals included in this study who comprised a total of 635,000 hospitalizations. That was about two hospitalizations per individual, although some individuals were hospitalized more than twice and others less than twice. This is an alarming fact. 98% of the patients involved in this study were bedbound, so almost all of them. And what they found was that the admissions to the intensive care unit from the year 2000 to the year 2013 increased from 17% to 39%, more than doubled the rate of admissions to ICU for patients with advanced dementia. In the year 2000, the rate of mechanical ventilation use was 39 per 100,000 hospitalizations. So for every 1,000 patients with advanced dementia were hospitalized, 39 of them would be mechanically ventilated in the year 2000. In the year 2013, that was 78 per 1,000. So it doubled in the span of 13 years. And the trend was more pronounced in patients who were admitted with pneumonia or sepsis. It came close to tripling the rate of the use of mechanical ventilation in these patients. Overall, the numbers broke down to a 1.06 odds ratio per 10 ICU bed increase of receiving mechanical ventilation. So you had a 6% increased risk of being ventilated if you had advanced dementia for every 10 ICU bed increase in a hospital. And strikingly, you would think, well, maybe this is just providing improved care that helps them live longer, but there was no improvement in mortality in patients who were mechanically ventilated between the year 2000 and 2013. And over 80% of those patients who were admitted died. So very, very alarming, very, very interesting, very fascinating study. Yeah, that seems like very, very interesting findings, Kieran. Um, what do you, would you say would be the strengths of this study? Well, I'm a bit biased, um, uh, obviously, being this is a personal area of interest in multiple ways. But I think that the questions that this study asked were really, really interesting. They're highlighting and asking questions around the rising rate of high intensity but low value care across uh, North America. They did these very, very robust analyses, these sort of subgroup and sensitivity analyses to ensure that there was no what we call omission bias in the data that they're looking at. In other words, they wanted to make sure that the findings that they had were true. And they looked at that by looking at patients who were admitted with pneumonia and sepsis who would be at higher risk of being ventilated. Those who were had, had worse uh, rates of cognitive impairment to see if you know their findings and their pattern was still the same. And similarly, they did that with patients who had a DNR established on their minimum data set uh, information as well. And all of those findings were consistent across the board. So I think that was very impressive. And then the last question was about association between ICU bed increases, an interesting subpoint about how hospitals were remunerated based on the number of ICU beds they had. And basically, if you were a hospital that had more ICU beds, then you would be paid more per admission uh, than the hospitals who had less ICU beds. The reasons for that are not clear to me, and I'm sure there's a whole host of factors why, but that's just an interesting fact that was highlighted and association that was brought forward. So were there any weaknesses that you found in this study? Well, it's kind of interesting because although we think that care over time has improved for patients for a variety of different conditions, 
and there's been a marked and effort to increase palliative care, there is an interesting contradiction that occurs in this study. Overall, we know that, in fact, the rates of feeding tubes in patients with advanced dementia are going down. In 2013, it was 5.6%. In 2000, it was much, much higher on the order of 7 to 8%, upwards of 10%. And there's also been a concerted effort to enhance palliative care services across North America, which would suggest or which would likely result in less intensive, medically futile care which might include mechanical ventilation. Yet this study found the exact opposite. One of the reasons might be that the patients in this study had a, had a rate of feeding tube use of 30%, so about six times what we would actually say the national rate is. So perhaps these patients were more likely for a variety of reasons to favor more invasive care, whether it was futile or not. And so that, that introduces an idea of bias into this study about the patients that are, that are included. They also don't account for patient and family factors or preferences, so whether those are religiously driven, uh, whether there's decisional conflict within a family. Uh, that's not included in this study to examine why these patients might be ventilated. Although it's, I found it still concerning that despite the fact that you had a DNR order on your minimum data set in your nursing home, the rates of mechanical ventilation still increased over time. So can you summarize your take on the balance of strengths and weaknesses in this study, and are there any fatal flaws? Yeah, I think overall the study is believable. The concern about the particular selection bias around patients who might be more inclined to invasive care is something to keep in mind and maybe affects some of the generalizability across the board to all patients with advanced dementia in the United States at least. But I think overall, on the balance of it, this study demonstrates some very concerning trends. Um, and I think it really continues to highlight the need on a national basis to improve care moving forward for these types of patients, which is going to require a lot of multidisciplinary, multifaceted interventions. And I think we're working on a lot of those right now, but we need to keep working harder. Agreed. Who does this study uh, apply to? Who is the typical patient that you would see that would be in this study? It's not unlike the type of patient I see overnight on call in the general internal medicine uh, service. Uh, in this study, the typical patient was an 84-year-old Caucasian woman who had impairment in six of her different activity of daily, daily livings, who was bedbound and admitted with a pneumonia, and about half the time had a pre-existing DNR order on her chart. And I think that that is a representative sample of patients that I see. Laura, do you think that would be a fair thing to say for the patients that you see when you're on service? I definitely agree. The majority of these patients either have some sort of impairment in their ADLs or IADLs and aren't completely functioning perfectly at baseline. I would completely agree with that. So overall, I think what I take away from this study is that the increasing rates of ventilation in patients with advanced dementia is concerning and just continues to reiterate the need, I think specifically for advanced care planning, both to have the conversation, to document it properly, and then to ensure that it's transmitted to the hospital when these patients are transferred for a variety of illnesses. And that perhaps moving forward, our advanced care planning efforts should arm patients and families with the ability to make decisions in the moment as opposed to laying out a predetermined set of criteria about what to do in situation X, Y, and Z because it's just impossible to predict what's going to happen to these individuals. And so these goals of care discussions are going to need to be revisited during critical illness and hopefully families um, and uh, physicians are armed with the ability to have those conversations.
Great. Thank you, Karen. Great. So let's move on to your article, Laura. Tell us a little bit about what you chose and why you chose it. So the article uh, that I chose was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine in October of this year, uh, and it's entitled Life Expectancy After Myocardial Infarction According to Hospital Performance. And the reason why I chose this article um, is because I found it really interesting because it really highlighted the importance of robust uh, short-term hospital performance and how it can affect the long-term outcomes of patients with something that we see a lot in our practice, which is um, ACS. I chose this article because many studies have shown that patients admitted to higher performing hospitals have an improvement in short-term quality metrics, but we really don't know whether the short-term benefit for patients admitted to higher performing hospitals persists in the long term. If higher performing hospitals do in fact have robust long-term outcomes, then this would really highlight the need for more important quality improvement measures to improve short-term hospital performance and therefore improve life expectancy in these patients. And I thought this article was really fascinating, so much so that we included it on the show. And, and for those of you listeners who think all we focus on on the rounds table since I've taken over our cardiovascular outcome trials. <laughs> You're probably right because I think they're all fascinating. But this study was more of an interesting question around hospital performance and quality of care and just happened to use cardiovascular outcomes as the, as the uh, avenue to get there. So thank you for selecting this. Take us through the study, Laura. What did they do to try to answer this question and examine what they're looking at? So basically, this was a retrospective cohort study, and it, it examined patients who were age 65 and older who had an acute myocardial infarction, and they basically used chart reviews, and they obtained data from Medicare patients. The study was conducted between 1994 and 1996, and the data was obtained from approximately 1,800 hospitals in the United States. And interestingly, the total length of follow-up was quite long. It was actually uh, 17 years for the patients in this study. So the main important exclusion criteria was that patients were excluded if they were transferred from an ambulatory surgery department. So basically, patients were excluded if this was a post-operative MI. So I'm just going to take a moment to explain in the methodology how they grouped the hospitals together and how they derived the risk standardized mortality rates, because I think that this is critical in understanding um, how they conducted the study and how they came about their conclusions. Okay, brace yourself, listeners. This is important <laughs> but complicated. Go ahead. So I apologize in advance. So basically, in order to ensure that they were comparing life expectancy estimates amongst patients admitted to hospitals with a similar case mix, they basically grouped hospitals together based on their expected mortality. And the expected mortality is basically the number of deaths expected within 30 days based on the national mortality data for the case mix of that hospital. So each hospital was grouped into one of five case mix strata and one having the healthiest patients and five having the sickest patients. So then to further complicate things, sorry listeners, once the hospitals were grouped into one of the five case mix strata, they were then ranked into quintiles according to their hospital performance. These quintiles essentially reflect how hospitals perform with respect to 30-day mortality among hospitals with a similar case mix. So to calculate the hospital performance, a risk standardized mortality rate was calculated for each hospital. So risk standardized mortality rates were basically calculated as the ratio of observed mortality to expected mortality at each hospital multiplied by the national observed mortality rate. 
So basically to put this in simple terms, if you had a lower mortality rate than your expected mortality rate, you would be a higher performing hospital. But if you had a higher mortality rate than your expected mortality rate, uh, you would be a lower performing hospital. And essentially the primary outcome that they were looking at in each stratum was life expectancy according to their risk standardized mortality rates. All right, let me see if I got this straight. So you take a whole bunch of hospitals across the United States and you make sure they're kind of the same type of hospital by how sick the patients are that they admit, the types of cases that they admit within that hospital. Exactly, that's step one. Step one. Step two, they then separate the types of patients within each of those hospitals into sick versus healthy or the healthiest versus the sickest. So those are five different strata that they break them up into. And then within each hospital and in each group of patients, they calculate this thing they call the risk standardized mortality rate, which is just basically how long did the patients live and how long were they expected to live based on the national data of similar types of patients. Yeah, exactly. Okay, Laura, so what's the bottom line takeaway message from this article? The bottom line is basically that patients admitted to high-performing hospitals after acute myocardial infarction had longer life expectancies than patients treated in low-performing hospitals. And interestingly, this survival benefit occurred in the first 30 days and persisted over the long term. Wow. And I think that some of the literature has suggested that the short-term survival is higher in higher-performing hospitals. But I think this study really adds the knowledge that that is a durable finding that carries on over time. So it's likely to be even more true, so to speak, than if you just looked at it in the short term. Is that is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, that's definitely a fair thing to say because they studied these patients up to uh, 17 years post-MI and this was a durable effect that persisted. Okay, and then we looked at life expectancy after myocardial infarction to see if you're a high-performing hospital versus a low-performing hospital, you may live longer. Let's find out if that's true. Laura, take us through it. All right. First of all, with respect to the patient population, so the study population included about 120,000 Medicare patients with acute myocardial infarction who were admitted to approximately 1,800 hospitals throughout the United States. So with respect to their findings on life expectancy, the first thing that they found, which was to be expected, was that the case, as the case mix severity increased, life expectancy decreased. So for example, the healthiest patients had a 13% 30-day mortality rate, whereas the sickest patients had about a 20% 30-day mortality rate for an absolute risk difference of 7%. The second thing that they found was that there were significant differences in life expectancy between the high-performing hospitals and the low-performing hospitals. So for example, in the healthiest case mix stratum, patients treated at high-performing hospitals lived on average one year longer than patients treated in the lowest-performing hospitals. Essentially, the healthiest patients lived approximately seven years after their acute MI in the highest-performing hospitals versus six years after their acute MI in the lowest-performing hospitals. Similarly, the sickest patients lived on average six years after their acute MI in the highest performing hospitals versus five years on average in the lowest performing hospitals after their MI. And these differences in patient life expectancy actually persisted after adjustment for patient characteristics such as age, medical history, their frailty score. They also adjusted for clinical presentations such as presenting with shock, elevated cardiac biomarkers, and they also adjusted for treatment protocols including um, revascularization. Wow, so that's a fascinating study. What did you think the real strengths of the way that they conducted this study are? 
So I really liked that they stratified hospitals according to their expected mortality and case mix, which in my opinion allowed for more accurate comparisons between the different hospitals. So essentially because they stratified hospitals like this, we know that the higher performing hospitals weren't just performing better because they were treating healthier patients. They were still treating the exact same patients that the lower performing hospitals within their stratum were treating, yet they still had better and more durable outcomes. Fantastic. That is a really interesting way to control for for bias overall. Okay, and then what about the weaknesses of the methods? I think the main weakness of the methods, and they actually allude to this um, in the discussion uh, in the paper, was that patients with acute myocardial infarction, the care for these patients has improved quite substantially since the time when the chart reviews were conducted. And just to remind you guys, the chart review was conducted between 1994 and 1996. So because of this, patients who now survive to the 30-day benchmark now in 2016 probably look a lot different than those who survived 20 years ago. So patients who survive now might have different future complications and future or different risks of heart failure, arrhythmias, and reinfarction in the long term. So I'm not sure that this study would be as applicable as we think it would be to the patient population now that we're seeing in 2016. So in the mid-90s, what do the patients look like who are included in this study? So Kieran, the typical patient in this study was a 75-year-old male who is a middle-income earner with a representative collection of cardiovascular risk factors such as hypertension, diabetes, as well as established cardiovascular disease. And interestingly, actually 20% of these patients were actually bedridden on admission. And this was true across all strata, regardless if you were in the healthiest stratum or the sickest stratum. My takeaway is that this was a sicker patient population, even in the healthiest strata. Therefore, the differences in survival rate may not have been as dramatic in a more healthy population. Yeah, and I think that's reflected by the rates of 30-day mortality in this study as well, right? So on the broader context of the literature at hand, we, we would say that the 30-day mortality rate from ACS, you know, if it's a STEMI, is probably somewhere between 5 and 10%. If it's an N-STEMI, it's maybe 2 to 3%. So if you roughly average that out, let's just call it 5%. But in this study, you know, we're seeing 13% and 20% uh, based on the different sickness strata that they have. So a much, much sicker population who's at a higher risk of death, and I completely agree with your point. So what are the main learning points of this article, or how, how do we um, summarize it for our listenership? If I were a patient, I might consider investing my time in assessing hospital performance, which may inform where I might want to receive my care, because it appears as though this will have an impact on my overall survival, which is regardless of my medical health. We don't know if this survival benefit would apply to other medical conditions such as sepsis or stroke, but it may, and only further studies will be able to shed light on this issue. Food for thought. I wonder if the same patterns apply in Canada and if anybody's looked at quality of care in Canada. Well, thank you, Laura. That's a very fascinating article. Let's move on to my favorite part of the show. And as I always like to say, this is your first time on the show, so you're not allowed to say it's your favorite part (laughs) of the show. It's the good stuff segment. Uh, where we talk about interesting medical news that's not a journal article that uh, catches our attention. Laura, what were you reading about this week? 
on NPR, which is one of Karen's favorite websites, uh, there was a great article on the United States election and uh, stress amongst Americans. So the article was basically saying that because of all the turbulence of this current election, 52% of American adults tell the polls that basically because of the 2016 election, they have uh, a very or somewhat significant source of stress. And I think that this just sort of alludes to the fact that this is a very, this has been a very, very disruptive election. You can tell that by just looking at the previous debates that have gone on. And it will be interesting to see if there are any increased rates of psychiatric evaluations or admissions to hospital because of this elevated level of stress. Kieran, I wonder if anyone's conducting this study. Maybe we should consider looking into this. A food for thought there, even more so. Amazing. Okay, well, if you're a psychiatric physician or researcher and you're interested, please contact us at the roundtable. We would love to conduct this kind of a study. I'm going to try to trump that Good Stuff article this week uh, with my own uh, uh, article uh, about the world's oldest man. His name is Israel Kristal. He is 113 years old. And why am I talking about Israel Christel this week? Because he celebrated his bar mitzvah a hundred years late. Now, I'm not even Jewish myself, but I know that bar mitzvahs are a coming of age and very important Jewish tradition and ritual that most Jewish boys will go through. But unfortunately, Israel, due to World War I, was unable to, to actually have his bar mitzvah. But that didn't stop him. Life goes on. And uh, at the age, the ripe old age of 113, surrounded by two children, nine grandchildren, and 30 great-grandchildren, he had his bar mitzvah never too little and never too late. Why is this interesting in the context of medical literature? Well, two things. He is the world's oldest man, and that is a medical miracle in and of itself. And two, last week Paxson criticized me for talking about always death and dying and aging. And I thought here was a celebration of life in more than one way. Take that, Paxton. (laughs) Thank you for having me here, Kieran. Thanks, everybody, for joining us this week. It was a really fun week uh, and exciting uh, couple of articles. Laura, thank you for joining us on our show. I really hope you come back. uh, And I really appreciated all of your intelligent insight uh, in the article analysis that we did. It was my pleasure. I hope to do it again soon. All right. Look forward to talking to you guys next week. Enjoy your weekends. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week.